It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. No, I'm not going to lead off with anal, even if there is a Donald Trump angle. That would be a cheap and low-rent thing to do. Uh, Maybe I'll mention it later. I'll think about it as we do the podcast. Uh, I really wanted to get this yesterday, but there was so much going on with DeSantis dropping out and so forth. Um, The Buffalo Bills game against the Kansas City Chiefs, which, by the way, drew 40 million viewers. And in the end, Buffalo lost. You know, I went to college there um, on a missed field goal. A missed field goal with the game on the line. Now, if that field goal had been made and the game had gone into overtime, eh, Buffalo probably would have lost anyway because Kansas City is just an incredible team. But this is such a star-crossed franchise. It's the third time in four seasons that Buffalo has lost to Kansas City. And Buffalo, in an earlier era, went to the Super Bowl four times, lost each time. So um, I just think it would have been nice to win it once. Anyway, 40 million viewers. So I think probably 10 million of them tuned in for Taylor Swift, who was there cheering her butt off. And what's up with um, the other Kelsey, the brother? What? The, he ripped off his shirt and started to celebrate, and he looked like a you know some crazed fan. Tim Scott, highly respected in the Senate, may have gotten clobbered in his presidential campaign. I mean. He was knocked out well before Iowa. But there is one sense in which he won something. Because it was early in his campaign that Tim Scott announced he had a girlfriend. And there was some skepticism about this. Here's one story saying his bachelorhood became a hot topic. Some critics questioning why the 50-year-old had never been married or had children. You can read into that what you want. But Tim Scott now announcing he is engaged to girlfriend Mindy Nose, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, on a beach in Kiowa Island, South Carolina, over the weekend after a year of dating. So this was not something that was just done to create an impression. Tim Scott getting married. All right, now, about today's New Hampshire primary, we will have a lot to say. Uh, There was this, you know, little town. There is this little town in New Hampshire called Dixville Notch, which has a tradition of voting at midnight. Now, if Nikki Haley somehow manages to pull off an upset, all the polls say that's not happening. People will write, well, the first sign of her incredible resurgence was in Dixville Notch, where six people voted, and all six people voted for Nikki Haley. She swept the town. 
And I, one of the, it's one of these media stunts, basically, because there were 10 reporters there for every voter. Meanwhile, New Hampshire Attorney General's office investigating a mass robocall that used a fake Joe Biden voice to urge New Hampshire Democrats not to vote for president in the Democratic primary. The robocall, which is either an AI creation or some sort of spliced up version as first reported by NBC, Biden says, what a bunch of malarkey. We know the value of voting Democrats when our votes count. It's important to save your vote for the November election. Voting Tuesday only enables Republicans in their quest to elect Donald Trump again. So obviously they're trying to embarrass the president in his own primary, whoever did this, and I wonder if that will be found out. Um, This is interesting. After a, a viral confrontation with Donald Trump's surrogate and possible running mate, I would say she's in the lead at this point, Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, NBC News correspondent Vaughn Hilliard was told by the campaign he would not be permitted to participate in the press pool for Sunday events. It's Hilliard who's telling this to Puck News. Trump campaign says we don't ban reporters based on their reporting. Hilliard asked Stefanik about the E. Jean Carroll case, where, after all, Trump showed up yesterday only to leave when it turned out that court was canceled, for the day at least. Um, And Puck says that Hilliard was barred in retribution for a recent interview in which Hilliard had pressed Stefanik to comment on E. Jean Carroll's accusations against Trump. And here's what uh, Hilliard said in his pool report. Your embassy pooler has been informed that the pool will no longer travel and take part in the foreign president's stops before his Rochester rally, Rochester, New Hampshire. Your pooler was told that if he was the designated pooler by NBC News, the pool would be cut off for the day. After affirming to the campaign that your pooler would attend the events, NBC was informed about 2.20 that the pool would not be allowed to travel with Trump today. You know, he, she was saying, oh, this is just a media obsession. And he said, no, it's not just the media. Uh, Trump has uh, uh, been found liable for sexual abuse uh, of E. Jean Carroll. Uh, what do you have to say about that? You know, it was confrontational. All right, let's see here. Story number one. So here's, here's some of the latest from Trump about Nikki Haley for today's primary. Uh, I would say, Nikki Haley, I haven't done anything. I'm very upset with her. She said I would never run. He was a great president. She worked for me for like two and a half years, and she was okay. Not great. She was okay. But she said to everybody, in fact, when she left, I would never run against the president. He was a great president. In fact, at a press conference in early 21, Haley was asked if Trump running again for president would preclude her running. I would not run if President Trump ran, she said, and I would talk to him about it. That's something we'll have a conversation about at some point. Now, of course she said that. And if politicians were prosecuted for breaking their word on that kind of thing, 
there'd be a lot fewer available jail cells. I mean, sometimes it's breaking their promise to the voters. I'm running for a second term as governor, and uh, I am not going to run. But then, you know, if you have an opening and you run, you got to say things have changed, changed my mind. And usually voters, I think, don't hold that much against you. But for Trump, you know, it's all about loyalty. And here is the question where she said she wouldn't do it. You know, he's on Ron DeSantis for this as well. I don't think they ever discussed running for president, but, you know, he beats up on the Senate, and we'll get to that later. Now, here is another thing that Trump has said in New Hampshire to argue for full immunity for him, talking about presidents simply wouldn't be able to do their jobs uh, if they could be indicted by the opposition party. So now he's going back to Harry Truman. You ready? Hiroshima, not exactly a nice act, but it did end the Second World War probably, right? Nagasaki, he wouldn't be doing that. He'd say, I don't want to do that because my opponents will indict me. You have to give a president full and total immunity. So now he's saying Harry Truman would not have dropped the atomic bombs on those two cities in Japan if he was worried about immunity. Trump has, let's see here, an oddly symbolic relationship with the four criminal cases against him. His team sends out real-time fundraising pitches from the Washington Post, uh, linked to his appearances in court and even incremental updates to the proceedings. I'm in court right now, read a January 17th pitch. Thrown out of court, read another, after the uh, judge in that E. Jean Carroll trial threatened to kick him out of the courtroom. General John Kelly, who is Trump's second White House chief of staff, has given an exclusive statement to CNN. The first part of it is all about he didn't respect soldiers, he called them suckers. I mean, reporting that you've read before, but Kelly confirming on the record what some of which has been attributed in the past to sources. But then he goes on to say this. A person who is not truthful regarding his position on the protection of unborn life, on women, on minorities, on evangelical Christians, on Jews, on working men and women. A person that has no idea what America stands for and has no idea what America is all about. A person who cavalierly suggests that a selfless warrior who has served his country for 40 years in peacetime and war should lose his life for treason. A person who admires autocrats and murderous dictators. A person who has nothing but contempt for our democratic institutions, our constitution, the rule of law. There's nothing more that can be said. God help us. Look, those are powerful words coming from the man who first ran Homeland Security and then, you know, became the chief operating officer in the White House. Uh, I would just question why he didn't do this much earlier. You know, Kelly has gradually, gradually been more critical of Trump. Um, but on the, to do this on the day of the New Hampshire primary, it just gets lost in all among, amid all the static. 
Now, I have a column today in which I talk about Trump's emotional connection to his voters. And I think the key takeaway, it was, it was inspired by something that my liberal guest on Media Buzz, Leslie Marshall, said, which was, I may have talked about this a little bit yesterday, uh, that Trump is an entertainer. And I thought more about it, and I thought, okay, so when Trump says, you know, CNN and NBC should be kicked off the air, that's what I think where the question started. Trump says, dictator for a day. If Trump says, I'm going to get even with my enemies, I will be your retribution. Journalists hear that and say, you got to take him seriously. He's telling you what's going to do. And they react with alarm. Trump's loyalists hear it as it's part of the package. Uh, It's dismissed because it's funny or entertaining, or even if it's not funny, or even if it's not true, they hear it differently. They see him fighting back, especially with the four indictments that have actually helped him against a deep state system and the fake news media that um, are all after him. And I think that, and then I came to Nikki Haley and said, she doesn't have an emotional connection with the voters. She's run a really good campaign. She's the last woman standing, but she's also very disciplined. Some people have called her robotic. I don't agree with that, but she sticks to the script by and large until Trump gave her an opening and she questioned his fitness for office by mixing her up with Nancy Pelosi. So now we already see a shift. Everybody assumes uh, Trump's going to win today. Donald Trump has a problem, says Politico, no matter what happens in New Hampshire. There's a whole swath of the Republican electorate and a good chunk of independents who appear firmly committed to not voting for him in November. He is a known quantity as being judged by the electorate, not for the conduct of his current campaign, so much as his time in office. And that political veterans warn makes it much harder for him to win back the people he's alienated, including those once willing to vote Republican. Points to a New York Times uh, poll recently that said Biden had slightly more support among Democrats and Democrat-leaning independents, 91%, than Trump did among Republicans and GOP-leaning independents, 86%. Now, in the spirit of full disclosure, took Trump on his true social page, took another shot at Fox, didn't say what the details were, but he said, hard to believe how one-sided Fox News is. What a difference from the past. Likewise, the Wall Street Journal, owned by the same company or a related company. No wonder the Republican base no longer cares about them. It was all about Ron DeSantis. Now it's the bird brain show. He's bringing back that nickname. But the curtains are coming down on that one on Tuesday evening. He doesn't say what Fox did. It didn't stop him from doing that pull aside interview with Brett Baer. Um, that I aired on my show, Sunday Media Buzz. It didn't stop him from doing uh, another similar interview with Martha McCallum that she aired yesterday on The Story, her show, and also with a reporter for Fox & Friends, which I believe also aired yesterday. So he's always felt that, you know, uh, the network gave too much attention to DeSantis, 
and too much attention then to Haley. But that's part of the job. And much of the attention to DeSantis, like in every other news organization, turned pretty negative as he slid in the polls. All right, I am going to mention this thing I teased at the top, just to give you the context. Um, media is saying that former President Trump is trying to undermine E. Jean Carroll's reputation by doing this. He posted, in fact, starting at 10 a.m., uh, I, I don't remember if it was yesterday or the day before, I guess yesterday, he posted 40 separate social media posts about the column on relationships and sex topics that she used to do for Elle magazine. She was a contributor, and this was her monthly column. So, again, he's just quoting these things. In bed, would you rather be called normal or unusual? Here's another one. Really, does any woman like performing oral sex on a man? And then, anal sex, exclamation point. Are you behind it? Or is it not what it's cracked up to be? So what? I mean, she was doing her job. She wasn't advocating for any of these things. She didn't say, you know, it wasn't one of these like cosmopolitan type, like 10 ways to spice up your sex life. She was, you know, throwing out questions for her audience. So I don't think it affects her at all. But apparently the former president disagrees. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Precise, personal, powerful. Is America's weather team in the palm of your hands? Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Number two, Kamala Harris framed the fight for abortion access in searing terms yesterday up in New Hampshire, highlighting what she called the horrific reality that women are facing every single day since the Supreme Court overturned way. It was the anniversary of that SCOTUS decision. And I have to just digress for a moment and say Kamala Harris is taking the leading role on this, and she's doing more interviews. She was on a MSNBC show last night. She was on The View a few days ago, and she's got something else coming up on TV as well. And I also have to say, you know, agree with her, like her or not like her, agree with her on abortion or not, she's gotten better. I, I would bet the ranch that she's had some media training because she seems a little bit more relaxed, talking like more of a real person. And even her critics are acknowledging this. And so, look, you know, I understand her. She's had a hard time in not giving people confidence her in, in her in the almost three years she's been in office. But in a campaign, things can change, and they're really putting her out. Okay. Harris left little doubt that her remarks were aimed at Trump. As we face this crisis, and as we are clear-eyed about the harm, let us also understand who is responsible, shall we? The former president handpicked three Supreme Court justices because he intended for them to overturn Roe. He intended for them to take away your freedoms. 
And it is the decision he brags about. Uh, the Post describes this as part of a full-court press on abortion rights. In fact, I think it's today, let's see if this is in here, um, that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are supposed to make a joint appearance. Yes, that's right, with their spouses. Today, focused on abortion access, the Democrats obviously think, think this is a winning issue for them. They want to raise the profile of it now that the it's been returned to the states. Biden used brief remarks at the beginning of a White House meeting on what he called the outrageous policies that punish doctors and pregnant women for abortions. He called out Republican state legislators for enacting abortion restrictions. Even if you live in a state where the extremist Republicans are not running the show, your right to choose, your right to privacy would still be at risk. Folks, this is what it looks like when the right to privacy is under attack. Now, and Biden didn't used to talk about abortion so much because he is a Catholic whose personal view would be we shouldn't have abortions or we should have fewer abortions. But as a political matter, he's obviously strongly pro-choice. And... Two things about this. I was watching CNN and they were taking Biden live and all of a sudden they like cut off in mid-sentence and went to commercial and no explanation was given. Maybe that was just on my local cable system. I don't know. Secondly, I saw NBC's Yamish Al-Sindor who used to give President Trump a really hard time and in fairness, he would attack her too. A report on the Biden-Harris abortion initiative and there wasn't a critical word out of her mouth. I mean, she she said she just spoke to a woman who, for whom this was so important. I mean, she basically embraced what they were saying. Not even, you know, this, you know, not even a sentence of, well, this is a campaign tactic, and we'll have to see how it plays. Speaking of SCOTUS, Supreme Court siding with the Biden administration yesterday, clearing the way for Border Patrol to remove razor wire that Texas officials installed along a busy stretch of the southern border until the legality is resolved in court. It's an emergency action. Four conservatives, Clarence Thomas, Sam Alito, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, noted their dissents. But, and this is part of an ongoing battle uh, uh, between Governor Greg Abbott and the administration over the border crackdown. Uh, I'm not quite so sure at a time when Biden is trying to negotiate a deal about the border that would also free up money for Ukraine and Israel, why he wants to be taking down uh, barbed wire, razor wire. Anyway, number three. Uh, Here's a column in Politico by Jack Schaefer that echoes many of the points, frankly, that I've been making about Ron DeSantis' candidacy, but does it in a slightly different view in a, a personal way. By the time Ron DeSantis realized that the hand he dealt himself wouldn't win him the general presidential jackpot, and that it was time to fold, he committed yet another media blunder with his withdrawal speech. Ordinarily, when candidates throw in the towel, they do so on a stage flanked by family and bathed in the cheers of supporters, urging them to stay the course, but not DeSantis. Obviously craving his privacy in this public moment of defeat, he decorated a background with four American flags and shot the equivalent of a hostage video as he capitulated speaking through a fake smile. 
Even on this day, the Iceman of campaign 2024 lacked the human warmth necessary to establish a live connection with real people who had believed in him. Now, I have a completely different take. I mean, you know, was it the greatest video ever made? No. Would it have been nice to have his family with him? Yes. But I, I think he spoke sincerely. He's never been a charismatic speaker. But, you know, this is, there's a whole sort of kicking him when they're down phase. And, you know, Schaefer's entitled to his analysis. Um, DeSantis crafted his aversion to what he called corporate media during his governorship. Uh, in 2021, he told supporters in Florida, we in the state of Florida are not going to allow legacy media outlets to be involved in our primaries. A DeSantis communications aide taunted reporters who'd been excluded from this summit that he was holding, asking on Twitter, how is the view from outside security? So this is where he honed his aversion to what he calls corporate media. Now, since he won a record landslide re-election in Florida, uh, he was even on the cover of Time, but unlike past insurgents who rode a wave of free media into contention, John McCain, Howard Dean, Pete Buttigieg, DeSantis stayed in in his safe spaces. And I've told him in one of our interviews, why are you just staying in the conservative cocoon? And then, you know, in the last two months when he'd already dropped away behind Trump, then suddenly he's doing CNN town halls and Morning Joe on MSNBC and so forth. Back in the summer of 22, right, Schaefer? New York, Vanity Fair, and Washington Post observed that DeSantis and other Republicans had decided to lock out the press and speak semi-exclusively to their base. I pointed out, Jack Schaefer says that this might backfire because press avoidance makes candidates look weak because it forces reporters to dig deeper into archival material like oral histories, memoirs, campaign finance filings, and court proceedings. And because it doesn't stop reporters from observing the cane flow. For my trouble, I received a Twitter scolding from DeSantis's two-fisted press secretary, Christina Pushaw who wrote that DeSantis didn't, quote, talk to the liberal press, including Politico, because he just doesn't care and he doesn't want to give you clicks or ratings. Having locked the press out, DeSantis can't, like so many candidates before him, blame negative press coverage for his political crack-up. Well, he does. Because much of the negative coverage of him was purposely provoked by him and Pushaw. What was the theory here? They think making the mainstream press the enemy, that they would recruit support from voters who also dislike the press on the grounds that the enemy of your enemy is your friend. And the New York Times has a kind of a similar piece. Donald Trump plumbed the new depths of degradation in his savage takedown of Ron DeSantis, a year-long campaign of emasculation and humiliation that helped force one of the party's rising stars out of the race in front of enormous rally audiences. Trump painted DeSantis as a submissive sniveler, insisting he had cried and begged on his knees for an endorsement in the 2018 Florida governor's race. In a series of sexually charged attacks, Trump suggested without a shred of proof 
that DeSantis wore high heels, that he might be gay, and that perhaps he was a pedophile. He said that intense scrutiny would leave DeSantis whining for mommy. All right, let's move on to uh, the war. Story number four. The Israeli military suffering its deadliest day of the Gaza ground invasion yesterday. 24 of Israeli soldiers were killed, 20 of them in a single explosion inside territory right near the Israeli border. Most of the soldiers were in two two two-story buildings that collapsed in a blast involving explosives placed by Israel's own military to level the buildings, according to a uh, chief spokesman for Israel. He said a missile, a Hamas missile, had been fired in a nearby tank at the same time as the explosion and suggesting that might have triggered the blast. Uh, This admiral said that 21 soldiers who were reservists had been working to remove buildings and other infrastructure near the border with Gaza so that people could return safely to their homes in southern Israel. Also, says the New York Times, after more than 100 days of war, Israel's limited progress in dismantling Hamas has raised doubts within the military's high command about the near-term feasibility of the country's principal objective, eradicating Hamas, and also liberating the Israeli hostages still in Gaza. So, according to battle plans, Israel had expected to be further along in its conquest of the Hamas terrorists that has led some commanders to privately express their frustration and to conclude that the freedom of more than 100 Israeli hostages, remember these are civilians, which means it is a war crime. It is a brutal, but that's what happened on October 7th. Can only be secured, says this piece, through diplomatic rather than military means. The dual objectives of freeing the hostages and destroying Hamas are now mutually incompatible, according to interviews with four top military leaders. Here's Axios saying Israel has actually given Hamas a proposal through Qatar and Egyptian mediators that includes up to two months of a pause in fighting, two months as part of a multi-phase deal that will include the release of all the remaining hostages. Uh, Longest period of ceasefire that Israel has offered. More than 130 hostages still held in Gaza, although several dozen have died. And Israel and Hamas would agree in advance on how many Palestinian prisoners would be released released in exchange for each Israeli hostage. So they want those hostages out. But by doing that, of course, even with the two-month ceasefire, Hamas would give up its leverage. No longer would it hold hostages. And I can't say that I see this going anywhere. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Story number five is a hell of an important story. Involving... Fonnie Willis, who is even losing support from from some liberals, as I'll get to in a second. So an Atlanta area judge yesterday ordered the unsealing of the divorce file of Nathan Wade. This is the guy she hired as the lead prosecutor in the racketeering case against Donald Trump and lots of others. 
couple of his former lawyers have pleaded guilty, as you know. Wade has been accused of having a romantic relationship with Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis, prompting calls for both lawyers to be removed from the case. Um, it says accused after, I don't know, what has it been? A week, 10 days since this was filed in court by one of the Trump co-defendants asking that his charges be dropped. She hasn't denied it. And so the motion, let's just see here. The attorney, I should say, for one of Trump's co-defendants, Mike Rowan, says the records will back up her client's allegations about Willis and Wade. Coalition of media organizations, including the Washington Post, also filed the motions to unseal. In emergency hearing, uh, this judge stayed a subpoena for Willis to be deposed in the divorce case until after Nathan Wade is deposed. His estranged wife, uh, Joycelyn Wade, describes her, describes Willis, as Nathan Wade's paramour, who can provide insight about her finances. By naming Wade as a special prosecutor and allowing him to pay for vacations across the world, um, they're saying this was, you know, a horrible conflict of interest. Apparently, these vacation trips she took included not just San Francisco, but Aruba. And that's the guts of this. He's paid $650,000, his law firm is, and then he spends some of that money on his alleged paramour to take these lavish vacations. Now, when Fonnie Willis tried to um, quash the subpoena, she says that the, um, the estranged wife of Nathan Wade is using the divorce case as a vehicle to harass her, to disrupt the case against Trump and his allies. She has conspired with interested parties in the criminal election interference case to use the civil discovery process to annoy embarrass and oppress District Attorney Willis. Well, I would say she succeeded at that. Now, the counter-filing by Joycelyn Wade is she's not using the deposition to harass Fonnie Willis, but to um, ensure an equitable division of the marital estate, dissipation of marital assets, and the plaintiff's capacity to provide spousal support. Now, Here's Ruth Marcus, liberal columnist for the Washington Post. Uh, you might ordinarily think that she would side with Fonnie Willis. She says legally it's irrelevant, and she doesn't see Fonnie Willis being kicked off the case. But then she says this. As a question of atmospherics, the situation is a disaster, an unexpected gift to Trump that he will exploit not only to discredit the Georgia prosecution, but also to augment his broader claims of being unfairly persecuted. It would be advisable for Nathan Wade to step aside, as a group of legal ethics experts has suggested, but the harm has already been done and could get worse. And then she goes into 
the, this file that I just shared with you. Assuming the allegations are accurate, writes Ruth Marcus, Willis displayed monumentally poor judgment by bringing in Wade, a former municipal court judge and lawyer in private practice with scant expertise in a complex criminal cases. He's been paid $650,000, adding fuel to the fire are records filed in Wade's divorce proceeding indicating he paid for Willis' travel to San Francisco and Aruba. That's where I got that particular factoid. So it all comes down to what was she thinking? How could she endanger this is the most important case that she will ever be in charge of by harming her, air quotes, paramour, and then going on these vacations? What was she thinking? I think Ruth Walkers is right on here. Well, thanks, as always, for your time. I really do appreciate it. Um, we're starting off a new year here, and I hope um, you'll tune in when you can. As for me, I'll be back here tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.